Welcome to Passive Attack, the Asset First podcast. Steve, the last three months have seen very strong performance from equity markets. The UK is up about 15% since end of October. Japan and Europe about 10% and the US up 6 What's fueling this optimism and do you think it's really justified? Well, there are a couple of reasons for that. First off is the vaccine is the most obvious one, which gives us a fairly definitive way out of the pandemic. So, you know, the vaccine is effective. There's no reason to believe it won't work against any of the variants we've heard about or will hear about in the course of the next few months. The timing of that is is a little uncertain, but so too is the equity markets response that's volatile in line with estimates for uh, exactly when we might get out of this and when the economic restrictions might be lifted. But um, I, I think it's fair for the equity markets to respond positively to, to the flow of news in that regard. I mean, the most important thing is the biggest thing affecting markets, affecting the economy is the pandemic and the policy response to the pandemic. And vaccine seems to be like a vaccine. Perfect. That's what it says on the tin. Mm. If we look back at what equity markets did, it'd be quite surprising, isn't it, if you if you were a year ago and then you were told what the equity market performance would be on the next 12 months, you'd be quite surprised to discover that COVID raised its head during that period. We've come back very quickly. But how we got from the highs of February last year to today, equity markets seem to fall in lockstep, I guess, as you'd expect with the, the sudden uncertain news of COVID. We saw much stronger, quicker recoveries from the Far East and the US, and the UK was really lagging behind all summer until about end of October, which, as you say, it's when vaccine news started to come through and maybe it looked like we were going to get a Brexit deal. That's when markets started to move much stronger forward on the UK. Why were we lagging so far behind through last summer? And is the strength that we're seeing now just because we had lower values than the other markets? There are two reasons why the UK market underperformed. They are that the UK economy was more susceptible or more damaged by the lockdown response. So a larger proportion of our economy was hurt by severe lockdowns. And also the the way that we measure how our economy performs. What happens is that the way that we measure GDP slightly exaggerates the economic lockdown. So the most, I think the most obvious one of that is with fewer children at school, that detracts from our measure of GDP, believe it or not. So it is true that our economy is more susceptible to the poor effects of an economic lockdown, but also true that we, the way we measure it exaggerates those effects. So that, that's one aspect. And then the second aspect is, of course, Brexit. There's uncertainty about whether we had a deal or or no deal. So both of those two factors have been lifted since then. Turning to bond markets, yields remain low for government bonds, but we've got notable changes coming through on corporate yields, and in particular, junk bond yields, leading to significant rises in capital values recently. What's the outlook for bond markets in the medium term? And should we be considering moving perhaps more towards corporates? A lot of people think the bond market is a kind of a, a sort of monolith in the, in the same way that they consider equity markets to be so. If you've got a, an equity, a, a share in a company, 
broadly speaking, whether that share, whether that company is Japanese or German or British, you've, you've got a you've got a similar sort of instrument. The bond market is much more divided up, in, and and you can have different bonds perform strongly in very different environments. Even within the government bond market, you know, an index-linked gilt is a is a different beast to a conventional gilt. So I've no doubt at all that if we get it right, we can sustain values in the fixed income portion of the portfolios, no matter what the economic conditions. You know, it doesn't matter what the outlook for inflation and interest rates is, if we get it right, we could probably sustain values. My outlook for the bond market is is tied up inside that envelope. You know, different parts of the bond market will do well in the forward period. Certainly from a global perspective, we're in the recovery phase of this, of the business cycle. Or at least I, I think it's reasonable to assume that, you know, th- there are certain regions like the UK, which is sort of oscillating between recovery and contraction because of where we are in terms of lockdown and stuff like that. But the general trend, I think, is 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 for the recovery now to be established. And in, in that phase of the business cycle, the lower quality end of the bond market tends to do a little bit better, you know. Um, so yeah, high yield bonds, um, investment grade, to some extent, tends to outperform government bond markets. It's not it's not always true, but you know there's a tendency there. So yes, edge into you know we we could up the risk a little bit on our on our bond side to, to, to in an attempt to maintain values. We have to be wary of the fact that we are up in risk. Another crisis will be on the way at some stage, so we don't want to, we don't want to be caught out. We do want to maintain some some exposure to quality assets to give us. Um, firepower in the in the event of a of a crisis sort of occurring reasonably soon but yeah it's a reasonable course of action if you ask me is tend towards higher yield type uh, instruments in the fixed income proportion and if we were doing that well we've got medium to long-term gilts we've got short-term and we've got index linked gilts which area would be focusing on to actually shift towards corporate bonds probably looking at uh, conventional gilts being the most likely place i mean there are some interesting moves going on in the in the world of interest rates, you know, and nominal interest rates and, and real interest rates are, are heading in directions which are quite exciting. But I think this is not a position we'd want to hold for a long period of time because the, actually the conventional gilts in the medium range are are probably our most reliable diversifiers in the event of large drawdowns in the equity market. I know people are, are worried about where gilt prices might go given historically low interest rates. What we're concerned with really is, you know, what happens when the equity, if the equity market, when the equity market dives by 30%, what happens during those periods of time? We need something in the portfolio that will gain in concert with those drawdowns in equity market. And the asset that's most likely to do that is gilts in the sort of medium and longer range. So it's a sort of temporary affair. We, we can reduce our exposure there and increase and use that to fund increases in, in high yield bonds. That seems reasonable to me at this stage. All of this is a trade-off. You, you, we are trading off various risks. So diversification we need to keep. Which boxer was it that said everybody's got a plan until they get punched in the face? <laughs> we need to keep the diversification to ensure that if we are punched in the face that uh, we can ride through that and carry on to the end of the match. Indeed, yeah. Quite a big thing's happened as well since we last spoke that Biden's now in power and he did at the last minute grab control of the Senate as well as the House. Do you think it's good that he's got the freedom to push through policies with House and Senate or do you think it's going to present further headwinds for US investors? Yeah, I don't, well, I think the answer to that question depends on your, your political view. But I, I, from a market perspective, I would have thought that had the Republicans managed to maintain 
um, majority, you know, however slim that majority might be. I, I think that's probably a little bit more market friendly than where we are. The outcome of this is that we are we are going to see slightly higher taxes, slightly more regulation than we would have done before. And that, that's not overly market friendly. But I think it's also true to say that, that Biden's mandate is, is not a... If Biden's mandate is anything, it is for moderation. The margins in the, in the Senate are, are really tight. It's, you know, the, the vice president has got the casting vote. That's, that's a really tight one. So I think it'd be very difficult for them to force through anything particularly uh, exotic in terms of um, economic policy. So uh, they'll be looking for, you know, that th- they still will require bipartisan support for major policies. So I think the balance of power just about holds, I think. What way does the Biden administration affect the asset purchase programme? I think they're still going ahead. Is it 130 billion a month they're pumping in at the moment? Is that right? Yeah, I, but it, it, it'll have no impact on that whatsoever. Right? The Federal Reserve are, um, are reasonably reasonably free and independent. And don't forget that uh, Janet Yellen, as uh, Treasury Secretary, is uh, is a friend of the, the Federal Reserve too. So I have no no concerns. for. I, I think the Fed have, have done a remarkable job in the last 12 months or so. Alongside the you know, Bank of England, similarly, I think the two central banks have done a really good job of making sure that markets have remained functional throughout the crisis. And, and that's... That's good news. The asset purchase programs have been a big part of that. They're not going away anytime soon. If, if, if you listen to the uh, questions and answers from press for for the, the recent Fed announcement yesterday, then you know a lot of it. Jerome Powell was was stating over and over again that uh, there's not going to be any change anytime soon. There's, there's no chance of, of tapering asset purchases until the economic recovery is well and truly set in. And I, I, I'll take them as at the word of that. Did I hear they're also accepting they might overshoot the two percent inflation target, but they're prepared to do that to actually get things properly running. Yeah, I think we have to be slightly careful about interpreting this. I mean, it's because it's, uh, much has been made about the, the sort of flexible inflation targeting uh, amounted to some kind of change in policy. I'm not, I'm not sure it's a huge change, to be honest. But the narrative amongst the major central banks, if you, if you take the ECB, the Bank of England, the and the Federal Reserve, and, and, and certainly the Bank of Japan, I, I think will accord with this. But the, the narrative there is that, look, it is very difficult to get inflation to target from below target. So when you've got very low rates of inflation, and at the same time, you've got very low rates of interest and large asset purchase programs, that it becomes increasingly difficult to do more and more to try and support inflation and get inflation rates back towards 2% targets. Uh, But it is, by contrast, much easier to get inflation down to 2% from slightly above the 2% target. So that's that's part of the narrative. It, it, I mean, it, it also makes good sense. You know, the, the 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 central banks around the world have got amazing firepower now with regard to high inflation. They can tackle high inflation. They can act uh, by raising interest rates to a, from very low levels to reasonable levels quite quickly. They can sell bonds as part of their asset purchase program and and affect interest rates right along the yield curve. So they're, they've got a lot of firepower with regard to to fighting inflation. So I, my expectation is that inflation, and this is. Broadly speaking, this is for the UK and the US as well. The differences in Japan, obviously, and, and, and some differences even in Europe. But as far as the outlook for the UK and US, I, I expect inflation to drift back towards the target rates sometime around the, 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 the end of the year. This is pretty much in line with what the, the Bank of England is forecasting, 2.1% in, in terms of C, headline CPI for the end of the year. That all sounds reasonable to me. Maybe maybe we don't get there quite as quickly as we thought because these lockdowns are going to extend 
a little bit longer than anybody's anticipated thus far. But, um, you know, inflation back towards 2%, the central banks are not going to act on that. They're, they're going to want to see inflation uh, sustained above that 2% mark. So, and when I say above the 2%, I don't mean very high above the 2%. I, I, I think I think the central banks could tolerate CPI inflation of 23 2.4, something like that. You know, if you take the last 10 years or so, uh, I think the average rate of sort of um, personal consumption expenditure, which is the sort of U.S. version of or, or the U.S. central bank's target for for inflation, the, their favourite measure, I think it's in, it's averaged about one point seven percent for for ten or fifteen years now, which is you know thirty basis points below the target. Uh, I think if they can tolerate thirty basis points above the target for some time, and that averages out to the two percent, if you see what I mean. But I don't think there's an appetite for inflation much higher than that. I, th- I, th- I think we'll see. We'll see the central banks intervene to keep inflation below the 3% mark, for example. So I've got a fairly, maybe I'm too optimistic, but I've, I've got a fairly benign outlook for inflation in that regard. So questions now. First one comes from a UK investor who's holding US stock. And I think they've been doing quite well on a few tech holdings they've got. But just interested to know what the medium turn outlook is for sterling, both against dollar and euro. Well, that's a good question. Um, I, for one reason or another, I expect the strength in the US dollar to be less than it has been. I'm not. I'm not suggesting it's going to get weaker. I'm just suggesting that of late, the US dollar has done very well for one or two reasonably good reasons. You know, it's a safe asset, safe haven asset, and, and and we've been through a crisis and well, still in the midst of a crisis. My expectation is is for dollar strength to not to be sustained in the future, and and when you look at sterling and when you look at the euro, that they, they tend to have the an inverse relationship. So that that sort of that that's my broad expectation I, for, for sterling in in particular. Actually, as funny as this sounds, the, the political outlook in the UK is 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 almost uniquely stable, certainly compared to our European peers. We've got some problems. Will Boris Johnson survive this crisis as prime minister for very long? I don't know. Will the union survive? I don't know. But the Conservatives will be in power for the next four years. Uh, they've got a very strong majority. And if you compare that political outlook with the outlook in Italy, the coalition collapsing with the Estonians, where their governments had to resign, with the Netherlands, where uh, the entire cabinet has resigned. You've got question marks over, uh, you know, Merkel is due to leave before the federal elections in, in September, and we don't know who her success, you know, there's no clear successor at this stage. And even Macron's position in, in, in France is, is questionable given the elections next year. So the political outlook is, is reasonably stable for the UK. That ought to benefit the pound. And also the, the whole Brexit affair is now behind us. Brexit was, was you know, the, the will we get a deal, will we not get a deal? That was driving a lot of volatility in the pound's exchange rate. Uh, that's behind us now. And it, to some extent, the pound is, is reasonably pro, pro-cyclical as well. And plenty of free trade agreements, maybe global uh, trade picks up quite sharply over the next 12 months or so. That, that, that ought to benefit the pound. So I'm reasonably bullish on the pound. But, you know, take that with a pinch of salt. I'm, I'm no currency expert by any stretch of the imagination. And so, of course, if the pound is generally a bit stronger, that's a bit of a headwind on global earnings for the large UK companies. But of course, if we're going to have a more stable political and economic environment, then it balances off. 
Yeah, I, I think so. I'm not. Um, I've no fear for, for say the FTSE 100, even if the you know first off, I'm not. I'm, I'm not really forecasting huge run up in the pound or anything like that. Certainly not the, the kind of gains that comparable with the kind of gains you might make on equity markets, things like that. So, but also, you know, if the pound settles, becomes reasonably strong, we'll attract a lot of foreign investment too, and uh, and and the FTSE 100 will, will benefit to some extent from from investors looking for looking for gains where they can get them. Next and I think final question as we're coming up towards time now is a question about rebalancing portfolios and our property exposure. And to give you an idea, we're we're currently holding fifteen percent property in our in our balanced central portfolio, and that at the moment is 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 representing a significant slug of property to be purchased when rebalancing after the uh, the fall in in REITs through the, through the COVID crisis. Should we still be happy to do that this level and with with these conditions in property markets i'm reasonably comfortable with that in prospect we talked a little bit earlier about where we are in the business cycle if we're right about where we are in the business cycle and if different assets perform broadly in line with what we expect which is broadly in line with sort of historic norms at that phase of the business cycle then yeah, um, REITs are, are, are one of those factors that, that will benefit in the forward period. So I'm, I'm not uncomfortable with it, but I'm not sure I'd be that uncomfortable even if I wasn't forecasting uh, those levels. We, we've got you know properly diversified portfolio. REITs are a, a are a part of that. You know that they benefit at different times depending on where we are in the interest rate cycle and things. So I'm not uncomfortable with it. You've got to think about what opportunities there are elsewhere, and you know where are valuations at, at this moment in time and look I, I, I'm not overly concerned about valuations generally speaking because again if we are in the recovery phase if you go into the recovery phase with high valuations, you'll come out of the recovery phase with even higher valuations. so it's not a it's not a part of the cycle that I'm overly concerned about uh, uh, valuations that's not it's not to say that I'm, there aren't areas of the market uh, you know narrow areas of the market that, that that raise my eyebrows when I look at the valuations but uh, REITs are not one of those so I'm, I'm sort of reasonably comfortable. I think a general rule of thumb is if you feel uneasy about rebalancing and therefore increasing holdings in in things that have had a rocky time it's generally going to prove to be a good time to buy them. It was only three months or so ago that I was chatting with advisors who were fretful of rebalancing into UK equity income because that had had quite a torrid time. But as we stand today, in the last three months, it's the top performing equity exposure we've got has come from there. So probably we should be more fearful about buying the things that look good. But then again, that's the rebalancing process means that you're you're probably going to be taking some profits on those things. As such, are we still comfortable that rebalancing should be an annual exercise? Yeah, it depends, doesn't it? Uh, generally speaking, we expect there to be significant volatility in the course of a 12-month period in the equity markets. And, and rebalancing is an attempt to take advantage of that. You know, if, if you can sell stuff that's done very well and buy stuff that hasn't done very well, that, that's not a bad strategy. Sometimes it works, sometimes it doesn't work uh, as far as the timing is concerned. But you either have an ad hoc policy or, or you have some kind of diaried policy. And I, I think it's fair to say that we've got a combination of the both. We do it frequent, relatively consistently. We retain the ability to do when we think it's particularly valuable too. Okay, so thanks, Steve. We're out of time now. We'll wind things up. Key points I think to think of today are that the recent stock market rises, particularly in the UK, are justified, we feel, and long-term investors certainly shouldn't fear current valuations if looking to add more money to portfolios at this stage. 
With regards to bond exposure, as the economy continues towards recovery, it may be time to consider increasing corporate bond exposure at the expense of traditional government bonds. And when rebalancing, don't be afraid to take profits and reinvest into seemingly weaker asset classes. So that's it for today. I hope you enjoyed listening and I look forward to putting out the next edition in the spring. Goodbye.